Hello! Welcome to Spilling Chai on the Pain Gap. I'm your host, Anusha Hussain, and I think if there's one thing that the pandemic has made glaringly clear, it's how much women take on across the board around the world. Usually we're being told to lighten our loads, but then you come across the life and the story of our guest today, Hitha Palepu, a megastar multi-hyphenate, and you think, am I doing enough? <laughs> I should be doing more. I'm so excited to speak with this real life Wonder Woman because all of her work really centers on not only making sure that women get richer, invest better, smarter, but also live our best lives. Uh, I'm gonna quickly read you her bio and I'm so excited for you guys to um, tune into our conversation today, which really covers about the range of all the hats and the titles that uh, Hitha wears. So Hitha Palepu is a woman of multitudes, a feminist, a lifelong politics enthusiast, a daughter of immigrants, and a mother raising feminist sons. These multitudes spill into her multi-hyphenated career as an entrepreneur, investor, writer, and speaker. Hitha's passion for the news and politics is captured in hashtag five smart reads, a webby on social series that shares five must read articles every day to keep her community informed without being overwhelmed. Hitha's longtime blog, Hitha on the Go, established her as an authority on lifestyle topics and gave way to her book and collaborations with leading brands such as Headspace, Google, Northwestern Mutual, and many more. As CEO of Russian Pharmaceuticals, Hitha oversees financing, partnerships, and strategy for the company. Hitha also puts her money where her values are through early stage investing. A partner in Adamo Ventures, her family office, she has invested in innovative companies primarily founded by women and focused on women. She is our guest today on Spilling Chai, and I cannot wait for you guys to tune in. Hope you enjoy. Thank you so much. Really quick, I I can't believe uh, this is the first time we've talked because I feel like um, you're a best friend or something. I feel like I know I, you really well. <laughs> I feel the same. I think that's what you get after you read someone's book and like you're learning about some of the most vulnerable moments in their life. It's like, mm. hi friend, let's just, just get into the middle of it. I also think that is something really, really magical about you because clearly I'm not the only one who thinks that you are their best friend without ever actually meeting you uh, in real life. But this actually leads me to my first question for you, which is your books, your books, plural, because on top of everything, you're an author. So your first book was about your packing tips, which I'm actually, you know, too scared to even look at. <laughs> I'm not a good packer, but I'm surrounded by great packers, but I, I want to gift everyone your book. But your second book is about our vice president, Kamala Harris. So talk to our audience about what you hope your books will, uh, how they will help women live their best lives. I, it's a lofty ambition, but I have never been one to set small goals and something that's been consistent with, I think why I was put on this planet is to help improve the lives of women at scale. And specifically, I'm deeply passionate about saving time and energy on the things I have to do. So I have time and energy to do the things I want to do, which is basically read romance novels and needlepoint in like quiet. <laughs> and so if I feel this way, I'm clearly not alone. And I think COVID has only just exposed 
how much this our economy or society is built on the labor of free women. And I think it's time we say, I'm speaking and I need boundaries. And in order to show up to be the most to everybody and everything, I'm going to take this time for myself so I can be healthier, be happier, and bring that self to everything I do. And so that was, you know, the impetus for Hitha on the Go and then How to Pack. That was the impetus for We're Speaking and my Instagram content, which led me to um, We're Speaking. That was the impetus for Five Smart Reads and my Instagram content, which led me to We're Speaking. And now it's, you know, my my driver and it's sort of the filter I put on every decision I make of, is this going to help me with this goal? And so the book came about in a very serendipitous way. I'm a very lucky author in that the publisher reached out to me right after the election had been called for Biden-Harris and said, we're really interested in publishing a servicey, smart, advice-driven book um, centered around our new vice president-elect, you know, with given how well how to pack did, the way you've talked about your admiration and support for Harris, is this something you'd be interested in? And I, I was like, oh my God, this is my dream book, like project. Yes. When do you need it by? And they said, how's two months? And I'm like, can we make that two and a half? Like, could that work? But um, for as much as it was the quickest project I've ever done, this book flowed. I read, wrote the first half of the first chapter when I was at my parents' house in Pennsylvania for Thanksgiving. And the rest, I spent most of December in really research mode and flushing out that outline that had really come out quickly. And then spent January and the first half of February really writing, interviewing, editing, writing a lot more. And I'm so proud of the book. And it's the book I needed for for myself, because, you know, I think you can probably appreciate this. A lot of nonfiction books are either so deeply personal that they don't, I think, connect to a macro issue as well. Your book being a rare exception in that. I really love how you used your story to bring to light a very big failing in American healthcare. And similarly, on the advice front, I get really tired of a lot of nonfiction advice driven books repeating the same lesson over and over and over again. It gets wrote, it gets redundant, and it's also only ever really focused on one part of life, work or personal. So much of what I admire about Vice President Harris exists in the spectrum of her whole life, both what she's done professionally and how she shows up for her loved ones. How I've, I respect her marriage so much, how she shows up for her family, both the one she's born to and the family she's built for herself. And so it was important that the book also reflected that as well. And it, I'm really proud of it. And I hope it helps people the way it, it helps me as well. It's so great. What I love about your book, just the existence of it is I know like uh, women of color say it all the time, but it's so important for women of color, but also girls of color. Like I'm so excited that my girls get to grow up in a world where your uh, book exists. So, you know, it's, it's never, it can never be said enough how important representation is. We just didn't have it when we were growing up. Can you imagine Kamala Harris in the eighties? 
That would have blown my mind. <laughs> same. And you know what's actually interesting is I was speaking to um, a colleague of mine who is an older white Austrian man who had read the book and he said, I learned so much about this book. And he goes, I don't think I'm your target demographic. And I go, but you are. I may not, the advice sections might not be written exactly for you the way that I have really written those sections for women in color in mind, but I hope this book offers you context of how much we have to think about when we just show up in the world and how to be a true accomplice, not just an ally in building a more equitable world. I love was, that. A true he accomplice. A he true loved accomplice. it, right? He was like, I loved your book. And I was like, you read my book? <laughs> An older Austrian man. I love it. I love that he's Austrian too. <laughs> yes. Yes. This older Austrian man. He's lovely. Um, awesome. And, you know, the conversation proceeded to virology and COVID. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like how uh, the direction our conversation is going to go. I, uh, of course, love your Instagram so much, but you made a post uh, last fall that really stood up to me and it totally connects with how you just answered this question, making uh, men realize and just people realize that women's issues aren't uh, so many issues that are considered women's issues really aren't women's issues. And I feel like the pandemic is really exposing this mainly with our need. Well, one of the things is paid uh, family leave, paid parental leave. I loved your post which started dear as uh, quote dear men and then one of the hashtags that you used was stop calling us superheroes and it's so true boy i don't want to be a superhero we're going into year three hell <laughs> talk to me need, about that post <laughs> i don't need to be called a superhero i need structural support and uh, it just it's, I, I'm, I'm reminded of when the ACA was being negotiated in Congress, you know, however, over 10 years ago, that one congressman had said, why should I have to pay for maternity care? I'm not a woman. And someone had responded with, well, you were born, weren't you? And that that's how we view this world. It's in a very, for so long, issues have been decided by largely white men who have benefited by having their partner be at home and handle the home front entirely and legislating with themselves in mind not and whether that was from a lack of perspective the differing perspectives in the room with them when they were dictating policy or whether that was to preserve power as it has always had been i would like to give them the benefit of the doubt and assume it's the former but i have a hunch it's the latter we this is why it is so important to for the rooms where decisions are being made need to reflect what society looks like and in the united states you know it kind of drives me crazy with this new the discussions around biden committing to nominate a black woman to the court and some people going well they ignite are you ignoring so many other qualified candidates on the flip, if we just flip that perspective, how many of our Supreme Court justices have always been white men? That has been the norm until the 80s. I think the, the number somebody actually said, it, I think it was something like 
98 out of the 115. <laughs> it's like been like one black person. It was a black man. Forget about women. Yeah. And the whole thing about how this is affirmative action to put it's so beyond racist and offensive and misogynistic. I actually don't know where to start, but yes, I'm with you hundred percent on that. And it's just, it drives me crazy that the, the, the view of very few people, especially in the changing demographics of this country have been in charge to dictate policy for experiences they've never had, um, perspectives that they've oft ignored has somehow been acceptable for so long. And so change is frustratingly slow, especially sustainable change. Mm -hmm. So I exist oftentimes in this reminding myself of wishing we could just jump ahead to the future, but reminding myself if we do go too fast, even though comparatively to other wealthy nations, we are woefully behind, but this country is also a young country. Mm -hmm. We have to, I think incremental change is better than no change at all. And done is better than like, Perfect is the enemy of good. And it's important that we think about when we're advocating for policy change, you got to remember how to get the votes for it. And so yes. there is what I would love and there is what is realistic. And I will focus on what I want, but work on what is realistic right now and keep working. And, you know, for so many people who are new to political activism and new to, you know, getting engaged it's a long, it's a marathon. It's yes, not a sprint. And so you need to also stay focused on what issues do I care about? Where can I affect change? What is happening locally? Because that's where I can actually probably drive the most influence. And it's what you do every single day, the same way we approach exercise and healthy eating and sleep, or we should be yes. prioritizing all those things. Social activism is the same. Yes. So get off the internet and think about what you can actually do. <laughs> but you know what I love is that for so long, women were told the personal isn't political and women were told, the, you know, but women were saying the personal is political. And I love how in your post, you casually just threw in there about your husband and he needs it too. <laughs> but it's those stories. Those stories are so important. So I love, I love how you did that. Um, and one other thing that I wanted to talk to you about is that obviously even you know, extending going on in our longer issue about pandemic motherhood <laughs> and pandemic parenting is um, women and alcohol already had a complicated issue of relationship pre-pandemic. I'm more guilty about this than anybody. Uh, what are your thoughts to how that how COVID-19 has changed you women's know, relationship with alcohol? You know, it's important to like really I want to like say this in a manner that I respect everyone's decision on what they consume. And I believe in everyone is an adult that they can make wise decisions for themselves. But it is in having been that person who relied on her, who thought she needed her two glasses of wine a day, those two quickly became three. And then I was like, am I nearly polishing off a bottle of wine a day? Something's not right here. It started with me doing dry January last January in 2021 and having a rough time of it. Like I had a little bit of withdrawal and I was like, I, how is this okay? And then with, from there coming with the clarity of, oh, 
like it shouldn't have been this way and I'm sleeping better and I can show up better and handle a stressful work day if I've gotten a good night's sleep and I've gotten a good night's sleep because I opted for some sparkling water instead of a glass of bread. And so for me, it really did go the gamut of buying into the societal narrative that wine is mommy juice and that really toxic like motherhood requires somehow alcohol to make it through which looking back on it now and actually observing the presence of alcohol in so many shows and so many books and so many movies and kind of just not judging but just acknowledging i'm like oh this is i don't know how i feel about this now i also say this as a woman who truly loves the taste of wine my shifting approach with this is now there is a time and a place to enjoy it, but it is not the daily anymore for me that it used to be. And it's more of a, I like it on the weekend when I know I'm going to sleep in and I am prioritizing mm. a little bit more rest, but I'm also mindful about, I'm going to savor one really good, good glass yeah. of wine. Yeah. And then I'm going to switch over and I'll make myself like a non-alcoholic Negroni or a non-alcoholic margarita because there are so many amazing non-alcoholic spirits companies and beverage companies out there where I can still enjoy that a complex flavored, like something exciting to drink mm -hmm. without having it to have ethanol in it. Yeah. And I kind of have been unpacking this a little bit more where I did a quick Google search and apparently the global alcohol market is $1.4 trillion. Yeah. And that wow. whatever marginal benefits red wine had in terms of um, antioxidants and insulin regulation, yeah. actually, if you're someone who is <laughs> someone who ha is a moderate regular drinker, the other the risks are just so much greater in terms of increased risk of cancer development, liver and GI problems, inflammation issues it can trigger. So I just would like to create the space for non-alcoholic options to be as normalized and ramped up the way alcoholic beverages, alcohol first culture is. Yes. It's, just, it's not about either or. But it's about uplifting, you know, talking about how women haven't been in the rooms to discuss policy that will like significantly affect their lives. This is one very societal or cultural aspect that is kind of the same. Um, yeah. It's not about displacing you, but it's about making space for these other perspectives or in this case, other beverage options. I love what you're doing and it's so brave because, and it's so it's so brave because I feel like, especially in general always, uh, but specifically in the pandemic, really we were encouraged to use it as a crutch. Oh, lockdown, it's time for another drink, you know, and then it was like pandemic happy hour with your mom friends. And initially there was nothing, you know, it was kind of, I guess, a crutch that we all needed. I feel like the pandemic has shown us that there's such bigger issues for women's health, women's rights, women's lives that affect, you know, our families, but also the economies <laughs> and the overall health of our of our countries. But we're still kind of being told to, why don't you just have a vodka instead of, I don't know, lobbying for paid parental leave? Or why don't you just have Cosmos with your friends instead of focusing on um, the fact that we don't, um, abortion in America could be overturned. So I feel like it's almost like they want us to be drunk. <laughs> 
It really does. Like how many things have we, have been normalized to kind of suppress us and quit like a woman kind of does target this, you know, that book has a lot of value to it, but it also, I think is written from a, a perspective of a white woman who has been closer to proximity of power in the in a macro context than women of color have and alcohol and women of color like we have like if you just take a look at some of the shows it has become we're the ones to be portrayed more likely as the drunks or the people with substance abuse problems and that can also be reflected in the data that exists right now so you know Good points made in that book, but I have some issues with it, much like every book I ever read, with the exception of a few. And um, I also kind of just want to, on this front, like normalize a, a both and kind of mentality. I The, the pol hyperpolarization and partisanship and this sort of focusing on what divides us, I really, we've lost the ability to think critically and to accept there are facts, this is my opinion of them. And if someone, not on everything, but on a lot of things, if they view this, the facts differently and interpret them a different way, they aren't automatically wrong. And again, I feel like we're testing this right now with regards to racism, sexism, bigotry, unlawfulness, and people just straight up breaking the law, but... <laughs> On, yes. on other things, I think there can be room to just say, I fundamentally disagree with your assessment of it, but also I have mine, you have yours. Let's agree to disagree and let's talk about something else. Like, I think we've lost sight of the fact that why we might disagree on a few things, there's quite a lot that most of us do agree on. And I wish we would, fortunately it doesn't sell from a media perspective, it's the highly inflammatory news that gets clicked mm. on and therefore generates revenue. So there's a reason our media landscape is what it is, but I would hope that, you know, with five smart reads, my intent is to help people stay informed without the overwhelm and the emotion that mm. is the current media landscape. And hopefully to think critically in that I acknowledge you might not agree with my analysis of an article, but I want to create space to have a conversation where yes. we can disagree respectfully, but move on and agree on a lot of other things. And, yeah. you know, I welcome debate. <laughs> yes. Good. I love that. I love that because I also feel like that's, that's one issue, even in your adulthood, that you're kind of peer pressured into or you're made to feel, um, and I say this as a very passionate drinker, but you're, I see other people, you know, scared to, I mean, if I didn't drink, I would understand people. Why do they have their uh, social anxieties like you do? Because you are made to feel completely like an, uh, an outsider. On top of being an author, an activist, and so many other things, philanthropist, you are a pharma exec. <laughs> pharmaceuticals executive that is so badass just to say that out loud i love that so much but i do have a question for you tell me what you think about um what the covid vaccine rollout showed about when the pharmaceutical industry um pharma industry can work with the government good and bad what do you think so uh, you know my industry takes a lot of hits some of it is absolutely warranted some is taking a hit that other parts of our healthcare system should be 
and deflecting, which, you know, it's both and. I do think that in terms of how quickly we got vaccines developed and launched in partnership with the government, phenomenal. Unfortunately, we had a vaccine only approach at the very beginning out of the pandemic. So rebuilding our testing infrastructure and rebuilding other public health measures um, with the new administration, I don't envy them because they weren't starting at ground zero. They were starting like 10,000 feet below um, ground because we had to wait in line for all the other countries who had placed orders for everything from swabs to plastic tubes to testing strips wait our turn before we could begin truly ramping up as well as the regulatory approval from fda on a lot of these at-home COVID tests so it's both and but i do think it's look at how quickly the money was just invested into helping guarantee orders so that companies would take the investment to invest in development it's also what happens when the government is the largest procurer of some of these life-saving medications they become affordable and they're given freely and so i would love to see government and industry build upon this in a manner for diabetes for insulin products there are three manufacturers of 98 percent of all insulin products in the United States, Sanofi, Novo Nordisk, and Eli Lilly. They can afford to price insulin for shareholder benefit, not, I mean, for patient benefit, not shareholder benefit as it currently is, simply because it is the right thing to do the same way Pfizer agreed to a certain price for the vaccine with the government because it was the right thing to do. And it's truly an investment in the health of our economy too, if you wanna look at it that way. People aren't dying or getting sick because of insulin rationing. They can show up to work. They can contribute to our GDP. They can contribute those local tax revenue dollars from the local all the way to the federal level. It is a worthwhile investment to invest in the health of our people. And would I love to see this just for the most top 100 most commonly used drugs? Yes, of course I would. Do we need to start with one? Yes. We're not going to get all the way there if we don't show the benefits of doing it with the first right now. So, you know, with the Build Back Better bill kind of dying, Stop. it's oh, sad. Uh, I would call it a delay. <laughs> it offers an opportunity to do highly targeted parts of the bill yes. like this. And truly, I think something like this would also have bipartisan support. Yes. Expensive insulin is not a Democratic or Republican issue. It is an American issue. Mm -hmm. And while industry might, you might have to drag them along kicking and screaming, I think in showing how that one, it's a worthwhile investment into it's the right moral and ethical thing to do. And three, it will be good for business because it is consistent supply and orders. When you're ordering things at that volume, you can negotiate price. Uh, what do you, what do you have to say about what other countries say? What you, what do you think is the role of America when 
especially in this unprecedented pandemic. I mean, you know, some people are like, just give it out initially, right? It was like, just give the whole world. You know, why are we still kind of being rationing and politicizing this life-saving vaccine? I know we have the antivirals coming up, which I'd love for you to also discuss if you could. What so I actually on? want to gently um, push this a bit because we are not rationing. We are actually, we've donated more vaccine doses than any other country in the United States. And well, here's a both and thing. Something that most people don't realize is you say patent waivers, patent waivers. A patent isn't exactly the step-by-step -step instructions on how to manufacture something. A patent just covers what is novel and non-obvious about that invention. What we really needed to do is have industry be a little bit more forthcoming with the tech transfer packages, AKA the actual instructions on how to manufacture this. I also, having worked in industry, understand why you would be protective of it. There's liability considerations here. America being the most litigious country in the world, you know, it's, it's not an unreasonable um, manner to assess here. The second thing is Pfizer at the very least has focused on doing production of the BioNTech Pfizer vaccine all over the world. So it's not just being manufactured in Kalamazoo, but Sanofi is doing a significant amount of fill finish manufacturing at their own sites. And they have identified and started to bring online manufacturers in Africa, in South Africa specifically, in India and in China. With Moderna, they have a manufacturer in China and they're ramping up production worldwide too. These are not easy things to manufacture. It takes a little, and just because you have the instructions, the when you put it on a new line, it's gonna take a number of tries, AKA engineering batches, which are expensive because you're running that whole line before you can actually have a batch that can, one, be granted regulatory authority approvals from that country or that region's regulatory authorities, and then actually launch. It is a significant, cost investment and it's it's going into someone's body to hopefully save their life but listen adverse events do happen and they are tragic so when you're talking about life and death i it's to both and you should be as affordable and available to everyone and anything that's going to be jabbed into someone has to be done so with full security and full knowledge that this was manufactured absolutely perfectly and and that the you um can guarantee that that product mimics the one is as identical to all the other products that you've manufactured on every other line and that it's the same quality and at the same standard so i think it's a both and i think the us could do a much could can and should be doing more doses the reason that it was so slow is because of the contracts that the trump administration signed with industry where they let industry get away with a clause that I've never seen before that stated these are for U.S. use only. Wow. We, we you are not allowed to sell these. You are not allowed to donate these wow. to any other country. And this was reported um, early last year. Vanity Fair did a big article about it. But basically, the Biden administration had to renegotiate all these contracts. Wow. And that's something that most people, people don't do not out. know or and understand. I, yes. Wow.
And here's where I think the Biden administration has really evolved from the prior administration in that in the case of the um, Pfizer antivirals, there's a couple things they did that are, I think, are fantastic. One is, is offering the tech transfer package to any manufacturer who wants it so you can begin to ramp up domestic production all worldwide in India, in China, in African nations, in South American nations to make sure access is available and they are waiving any royalty rights. So they're just saying, here's a tech transfer package, make it, sell it to your, in the local markets. We don't need any kind of royalty or whatnot. The second is favored nation status. So if another country, and it's a handful of wealthy nations, but if another one of those nations sets, buys it from Pfizer at a lower price, the U.S.'s price will match that lower price than what was originally negotiated. Which we're talking about favored nation status as a way to reduce costs on other drugs. Here's the government actually testing that to see if that is to demonstrate, do we, can this actually work to reduce costs at home? Now, it's in a narrow scope, but it gives me hope that we are moving in the right direction when it comes to the affordability of healthcare, specifically on the affordability of medicines. Oh my goodness. I feel like you should teach a class just <laughs> to make such a difference when you speak to somebody from the pharma world, guys. Who knew? <laughs> wow, that is fantastic. Oh, I have so many more questions, but I'm scared we're running out of time. I have to have you back because I really want to also talk to you about what as an Indian you felt like when India was kind of going through that wave. I feel like how did, because India was giving vaccines at one point to Bangladesh. And then when India kind of got slammed by the Delta, I mean, what happened? I don't know. Can you give me an extra five minutes? I know this is a yeah, loaded yeah, yeah. question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. Great. I have India, to ask you, you're so brilliant yeah. and I just need your brain so, in everywhere. India is one of the largest, like the Serum Institute of India is one of the largest manufacturers of vaccines in the world they went with the covax vaccine which is you know an adjuvant vaccine very familiar with what we have truly adjuvant vaccines the efficacy you did not the effectiveness is not the same that you observed in mrna vaccines which by the way nobody could have predicted like it is shocking how effective they were against the original variant however and adjuvant vaccines are cheaper. They can be distributed in room temperatures conditions or just basic refrigeration, not in below freezing cold supply chain. You know, India is both phenomenal in being a world leader in the production and distribution of vaccines that can be safely transported and administered to most of the world without special conditions. And also I felt like we should have if I were the head of the Serum Institute or if I was the Indian government, I would have managed local supply and international supply a little bit better. And maybe just said, we can commit 50% of our capacity for global until we've reached a certain vaccination rate in country to um, before we can make that number larger. That's how I would have gone about it. I also am a little, I'm very perturbed that they claimed that the United States was somehow blocking them because I'm like, that's not how supply contracts work. If you're saying you can't get certain components to manufacture vaccines, 
you did not do a proper capacity planning job to submit your purchase orders for components and filling needles and all these very unsexy things like vials and stoppers and whatnot ahead of time and to basically accuse President Biden of blocking you when it's just simply not true. Was yeah, that was I totally found. the yeah, that, that was totally the storyline, even back home. <laughs> That's it was, why I had to ask. And it's a false narrative that just one guy tweeting one thing somehow was accepted as the truth. And I got very frustrated by reporting going, I'm like, this is not true. And this is not how it works. Like as someone who has been on the phone with vendors to try to be like, I'm really going to need those vials like next week and paying an insane fee to get files airshipped to the United States in a pandemic from Germany is I will spare you the details, but you know, the, the devil is in the details with drug production and it's unhelpful to, to put blame that doesn't, is not deservedly there and to maybe just own up and say, we made a mistake or we erred in our, how we capacity plan. This is how we're improving upon it. Then again, I don't run a publicly traded company that lives and dies by its stock price. So I don't know that feeling. So, you know, that's a little, <laughs> that's a little context for you, but I did hate that's seeing, great. you know, our country really just suffer. Our region suffers so much yes. and so many people died. And I have family who works in healthcare in India and them fearing, you know, is this the last day I'm going to come home? It, it, it's tragic. Oh my God, it, was, it was traumatic. It was traumatic. You know, I still have family in Bangladesh and, and we were just like, oh my God. <laughs> Because, you know, this is what I was starting to explain to my American friends. Something happens in India. The rest of the subcontinent will just feel all those ripple effects. And my parents were just talking about how you can't even really fully close down the borders, that there's trade and people still going every single day. So, yeah, that was just a, it's it's incredible that 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 was just one wave of the pandemic. Um, oh, I could just talk to you forever. I love you so much. I can't believe I haven't met you. Um, you are such a treasure and a joy. And I love, I love your brain. I just want to absorb it all. <laughs> Let's you. get together for chai when it's safe to do so in yes. real life. Please. Chai and samosas, a nice desi cha. Yeah. Or also if it's raining, pakoras. Yes. Can you make some good pakoras? I feel like you could. I mean, no? maybe, you, maybe you come up to New York <laughs> We'll and get delivery. Mom, oh, your mom! My mom makes. <laughs> that is done. Done. Fantastic. She is rationing her Indian recipes because she goes, "If I teach you everything, you'll never come home." And I'm like, "That's a lie." That's really smart. <laughs> That's a lie because she's a phenomenal cook, and I will never cook like her. And so I'm just happy to eat her food. Oh, well, it sounds like something we should both do together soon, hopefully. Yes. Thank you so much, Hitha, for your time. I will speak Thank to you, you soon. I'll be in touch. Talk soon. soon. Bye. Bye.